You know, at this moment, 200 million Christians around the world uh, suffer some form of persecution uh, simply because of their faith in Jesus. From simple harassment to imprisonment to, uh, to murder, martyrdom, 200 million. Uh, that number may surprise many of you, primarily because the news media fails to cover uh, the issue of the persecution of Christians around the world. But recently, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom released its 2012 annual report uh, in which it cites uh, specific countries for flagrant and ongoing human and religious rights violations. The top ten are the ones you saw. Especially, these are especially in terms of persecuting Christians. North Korea, Iran, Pakistan, uh, Egypt, China, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Uzbekistan, uh, Vietnam, and Eritrea. In the New Testament, when the writer of Hebrews writes to Christians and talks about those who are being persecuted because of faith, he says to the Christians to whom he was writing, he says, Remember those who are mistreated. As if you are yourselves, uh, as if you yourselves were suffering, and so uh, this morning, all around the world, churches like ours, where where people are free to worship, are praying for uh, those fellow Christians who do not have that freedom and indeed are being persecuted. So, would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we're thankful for the freedom that uh, has been afforded to us uh, in this country, where we can meet together and we can sing and we can. Uh, proclaim faith in Christ, call ourselves Christians without fear of retribution. Um, But that is not the case in so many areas of the world where your people are harassed and imprisoned uh, and persecuted, even put to death because uh, they call themselves followers of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that today... um, that you would seek out those, uh, those believers who are suffering uh, and in a special way be with them. May they sense your presence and your goodness and your grace and may you strengthen them even in the midst of the suffering. And uh, Lord, would you consistently bring them to mind that we might not forget them. And we also recognize that even in those places where persecution exists, your church thrives sometimes even more so than in lands where we're free. And so we just ask, God, today that um, you would be with your people all around the globe, whether free or persecuted. May we all sense um, the need of sharing this good news of your love with our world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 20. By the way, it is uh, Veterans Day weekend. Uh, I want to say thank you to all the veterans who have served our country, who served us. So why don't we give them all a round of applause. I know there are a few of them here this morning. We, uh, we We appreciate your service. Uh, as most of you know, we're in a series called It Starts With Ten, in which we're looking at the Ten Commandments. And as we have done over the last nine weeks, let me again point out to you that God gave these commandments to the Israelites after they had left Egypt. In other, in other words, the people were rescued by the grace and power of God, not by keeping rules, not by keeping these directives. These things were given to the Israelites because after centuries of slavery, 
freedom was a whole new deal for the people. I mean, it's a new experience, and they needed some direction on how how to survive and how to live in safe, sustainable community. And so God issues these commandments to help them understand that, how to understand how healthy human life and community, how it's all supposed to work, how it was meant to be. And as we've learned, the commandments are all about relationships. In fact, if you've missed any of these, I encourage you to go online and, and catch up on them. But the first four had to do with the people's relationship to God as their creator and rescuer, and the rest was about their relationships to each other as family, friends, neighbors, uh, as human beings. And so this morning we come to commandment number 10. And God says to his people, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. He says, you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, as all of you well know, we've just come through a rather intense political process with uh, this past Tuesday being election day. And so all the stumping and all the debating is finally done for a while. And I'm grateful for that. And unless you've been totally disconnected or you've totally checked out or been out of the country for months, uh, then you realize that much of the presidential campaign had to do with the economy, with some leaders and talking heads saying the economy is, is, is okay, others saying it's not, not, you know, not so much, it's not doing well, but it was a focus. Uh, where will it go from here? I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't pretend to be an expert on economics, although I do know where the English word economics come from. It comes from a Greek term, oikonomia, oikos meaning house, nomos meaning rule or law. So literally the the, the word means rules of the house or laws of the house. Uh, But for us, uh, the term has come to describe, primarily describe the social science that analyzes the production, distribution, and consumption of goods and services. And as we race toward uh, Christmas season 2012, Hopes for the economy are high because by December 25th, Americans will have pumped somewhere around $470 billion into it. And again, I'm not an expert and I um, certainly don't want to deny the complexity of economics, uh, but in some ways it's not too hard to understand. Our economy is built on consumer spending. Uh, This is how it works. We need to spend more now than we are, right? We need to spend more right now than we are in order for the economy to grow. In other words, uh, increased spending equals growth. Decreased spending and, and and the economy shrinks. There's recession. And so as a nation, you know, we're encouraged to spend. It's almost considered patriotic. Uh, and there's this relentless um, fueling of our desire to want more, to buy more. Uh, culture feeds us the notion that we can't, we can't be happy with, with what we've got. We've got to have bigger, better, uh, newer, faster, nicer stuff. And with Black Friday and Cyber Monday on the horizon, marketing and um, advertising specialists are going to make a concerted effort to entice us and trigger our buying mechanisms. And um, here's the reason why it works. It's because as human beings, we struggle with the concept of enough. We never feel like we have it. And you can trace this struggle all the way back to our Genesis, back to the beginning, uh, to the creation when God placed man and woman in a garden paradise and said to them, all of this around you, all of this is, is for you, for you to enjoy, uh, with the exception of uh, the fruit of one particular tree. Uh, God had given man you know, everything he needed and more, and yet man embraced a lie, that all God had given was not enough. He needed one more thing. And... Uh, it's been our downfall, downfall ever since. 
And it's this sinful yearning for more that fuels our covetous nature. Um, Dr. James Twitchell is a professor of English and, and advertising at the University of Florida. He's written a book entitled, Lead Us Into Temptation. And in the book he says this, We live in a commercial age, awash in a sea of brand names, logos, and uh, advertising jingles, not to mention commodities themselves. And he asks two questions. He says, Are shoppers merely the unwitting stooges of the greedy producers who will stop at nothing to sell their wares? Are the producers' powers of persuasion so great that resistance is futile? And I would answer no to both of those questions because I don't think we're just a bunch of stooges who are powerless over commercial influences. Uh, I do believe, however, that we are all sinfully selfish on a very deep level and have a predisposition to over-desire things to uh, to our own detriment and the detriment of others. But it's important we recognize and understand that God uh, has nothing against money. He has nothing against uh, property or personal possessions. God has nothing against pleasure, um, recreation, entertainment, or or, uh, having fun. God is not anti-capitalism or anti-consumerism or anti-American. But God is anti-sin. And uh, he clearly indicates that to covet is wrong. It's messed up. And as all sin does, it negatively affects our lives, our relationships, uh, our community, and our culture at large. How does it do that? Well, let's think about it for a few minutes here. Uh, First things first, God says to his people, you shall not covet. What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew term uh, hamad uh, means strong desire or um, adoration. And when used in a negative sense, as it is here, uh, the term refers to an all-encompassing compulsion or over-desire for something or someone to the point uh, that you take action to possess it. In other words, coveting is more than fantasizing. It's actually formulating and following through on a plan to get exactly what you want, some way, shape, or form. In fact, God offers an example, some examples of things that inflame this passion to possess. He says, uh, he says to the people, you shall not covet. You shall not cover your neighbor's house, ox, or donkey, or anything else. Um, contemporary translation. You shall not over-desire luxurious homes, cars, trucks, gas grills, clothes, jewelry, hot tubs, bear's tickets, bull's tickets, you know, whatever it is that your neighbor has. Do not covet that stuff. Along with, what, uh, along with that, God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, i.e., don't allow the attractiveness of another person's spouse entice you to pursue an inappropriate sexual relationship. God says, do not covet your neighbor's male or female servant. And since uh, having servants was and is a, a luxury of the, um, the very financially well-off, basically God is saying, do not covet your neighbor's success, their wealth, or their, their, their prestige. So here's my Reiki summary. God says to his people, sex, money, and stuff all have a way of inflaming your, our selfish human over-desires. But why is that a problem? You know, and, uh, why, is, why is coveting wrong, and why does God have such an issue with it? And it seems to me there are several reasons. Uh, for one, coveting indicates a lack of love and concern uh, for the people around us, for family, for friends, for neighbors, for whoever owns what we want. See, when we covet what belongs to another person, 
in essence, we begin to view the object we long for as more valuable than its owner. If your neighbor's spouse or, or, or home or wealth uh, is the object of your desire, then your neighbor becomes the object of your disdain, of your resentment. Because again, coveting um, is fueled by selfishness. And when our passion to possess is in full gear, you know, hey, nobody else's feelings or needs or family or relationships or life really matters to us. We don't give a rip. All we care about is getting what we want. Which then brings us to the second reason coveting is wrong, and that's because it leads leads us to violate other commandments, right? When all we care about is ourselves, our needs, our desires, and getting what we want and doing whatever it takes to get it, we are remarkably quick to disregard God's previous commands, His previous directives. Uh, we, we are tempted to mistreat everyone and anyone around us, including our parents, you know, to get what we want. We will violate relationships, and we will hate, and we will murder, and we will commit adultery, and we will steal, and we will lie, all in an effort to try and, and satisfy ourselves. It happens every single day. A third reason coveting is wrong is because it reveals our discontentment. Discontentment with what God has provided us. There's no denying it. When we covet, we are essentially expressing dissatisfaction. It's like saying, you know, God, uh, you haven't been fair with me. Uh, you, you haven't given me enough. You haven't given me exactly what I want. You haven't, you haven't given me what I deserve. I'm entitled to more. I'm entitled to a romantic relationship. Or I'm entitled to a nicer husband or wife. I'm entitled to a, a higher status in society. I deserve a better job, a bigger salary. A nicer home, a sportier car, better clothes. You have shortchanged me, God. You owe me. And I want, I want what that person has. Now, none of us would probably ever verbalize those ideas. We may not even be aware they exist. We may not be consciously aware of them. But the fact is, those attitudes and ideas underlie every covetous thought, word, and action. It's saying to God, you haven't been good enough to me. You haven't been generous enough to me. I want more. And really, it's just, it's like an arrogant, selfish, thankless slap to God's face. The fourth reason coveting is wrong is because it always ends in exhausted emptiness. Always. Uh, In the Old Testament, Solomon was King Solomon is considered one of the wealthiest and wisest men who's ever lived. And Solomon put it this way. He said, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And he goes on, he writes about how chasing after more and more and more stuff is like chasing the wind. You can never grab hold of it. In other words, it's coveting leads to an insatiable, uh, insatiable pursuit that never finds uh, meaningful Uh, lasting fulfillment. It just doesn't. It leaves us tired and empty. Unfortunately, Americans are a prime example of this. Um, Personal greed has pushed us to social fatigue. We are a worn-out culture because the never-ending quest for a little bit more um, is, is driven by this illusion that happiness comes by way of material things. And so the perpetual quest for more and more and more, along with every, the everyday realities of you know, unpaid bills, dirty laundry, excruciating deadlines, grocery shopping, diaper changes, job stress, business trips, illness, relational difficulties. I mean, is it no wonder we're so exhausted? You know, America may well be the wealthiest nation on earth 
with an, an abundance of resources and amusements and luxuries and sensual delights, but we are not happier or more fulfilled because of it. We're not. Never in human history has any one culture ever experienced such physical comfort while at the same time such psychological and spiritual misery. It's sad. And maybe some of you are here because of that very thing. You've come to a place in your experience where you realize there's got to be more to all of this than just you know living, working, shopping, and dying. You've been running around, you've been working hard, earning more, spending more, going more in debt, acquiring more stuff, and, and yet at the end of the day, you're left tired, burned out, and feeling empty on the inside. The over-desire to possess has not led to happiness or any sense of true fulfillment, and you're wondering if there's another alternative. And the answer is, there, yes, there is another alternative. The other alternative, the alternative to covetous living is contented living, which uh, in a way, is what this Tenth Commandment is calling us to. I mean, think about it. Expressed in a positive way, God is essentially saying to His people, be content with what you have. Be content with it. I like how um, contemporary artist Cheryl Crow sums it up. Uh, she sings and, and puts it this way. Listen to this. Now, most of you have probably heard that song, right? But really, it's a song about contentment. She's saying, lighten up, people. Let's soak in the sun, enjoy life, enjoy what you have, because she's saying, look at this, she's saying, finding happiness and contentment, you know, it's not having what you want, it's wanting what you've got. That's brilliant. She's brilliant. She's a brilliant, that is deep, that is deep theology. Now, I'm not a big Cheryl Crow fan, guys, don't think I'm running around the house listening to Cheryl Crow every day, but, but that's brilliant theology. It's spot on. And if Cheryl Crow doesn't do it for you, how about Jesus? He puts it this way. Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Um, More is not necessarily better. In fact, Jesus pressed that idea when he taught his followers to pray. He said, pray this way. Father, give us today our daily bread. My Ray K K translation, God, give us what we need and help us be content with what we've got. And I don't know how you feel about it, but contentment to me sounds like a pretty good thing. It sounds like something I would like to experience. I'm guessing for most of us in our exhaustion, we would like to experience it too. The question is, is it even possible? And if so, how? How do we find contentment, true contentment? And in some respects, it's complicated, especially as flawed human beings living in a consumer, uh, consumer-oriented, driven, obsessed culture. And so it seems to me that contentment is really more of a process, a process that begins when we, we realize that the true meaning of life is not found in what we own, but in who we are, namely men and women created by God in His image, every single one of us. There are no exceptions. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you look like, walk like, talk like, where you're from. It doesn't matter that we're all sinfully broken and rebellious. God loves us anyway. He proved it. Jesus said it this way, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The Apostle Paul explained it this way to the early church. Paul wrote, he said, God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, (laughs) Christ died for us. Listen, contentment is, not, is, is found not in what you own, 
but in realizing who you are. People loved by God. It's found in understanding and admitting that all the stuff we acquire in this life can't take it with us into the next. Can't. None of it. Not the cars, not the iPhones, not the iPads, the, the weekend cabins, the clothes, nothing. It, n- nothing goes with us. That's why Jesus asked the question, he said, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Nothing. Nothing. Because God's not interested in your money. He's not interested in your possessions, in your stuff. He's interested in you. In you. Contentment requires we be aware of what we look at and fixate on. You know, for the most part, coveting begins when we see something we like, something that's appealing to us, and we fix our eyes on it and focus on it and begin to move toward possessing it. How do we combat that? I think we combat it by consciously looking away and moving in the opposite direction, which involves slowing down and asking ourselves the right questions. Questions like, do I really need this? And will I feel better about myself after taking possession of it? And what are the consequences of getting this thing? Financially, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. Contentment requires we repent of our discontentment and thank God for all that He's given us. Because the fact is, He's given us all way more than we need and far more than we ever deserve. One day the Apostle Paul wrote to a young man named Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor. And uh, Paul writes him this letter and he says, Hey Tim, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we had food, food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. And then finally, contentment is found when we recognize what we're really searching for and pursue that which truly satisfies. Listen to me. The things of this world, none of them will ever truly satisfy us. They won't do it. Joy Davidman was an atheist, turned Christian, and uh, married C.S. Lewis. And she wrote this book entitled The Smoke on the Mountain, an interpretation of the Ten Commandments. And it's funny how Lewis gets all the billing on the front cover of this book. Joy Davidman was very, very bright, bright woman. And in this book, in regard specifically to the matter of coveting, this is what she says. She says, Christianity is everywhere paradoxical, everywhere too difficult for simple black and white thinking. But nowhere more so than in, in its doctrine of worldly goods. For they are good things, and yet we must not long for them. They are to be enjoyed, and yet we must not make that enjoyment our goal. If we have them, worldly goods, she says the best possible thing we can do with them is to give them away. And if we don't have them, we may expect to get them, but we mustn't worry about it. It seems we're told not to desire what by our very natures we cannot live without. The paradox is easier once we remember that the test runs, seek ye first the kingdom of God, once we remember ends and means. Do you get what Joy Davidman was getting at, what she's saying? She's saying, she saying, look, Christianity affirms that there are a lot of good things in life, 
uh, things that we can enjoy, and, and, and enjoying them is fine. But if possessing more and more and more becomes your life goal, then you're better off giving all your stuff away. Because true meaning, true contentment comes in seeking God and His kingdom first and foremost above all else. Because God alone satisfies our deepest human longings and needs. That's what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote the church. He said, you know, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So contentment, I mean, it sounds good to me. But what does it really look like, you know, on a daily basis, in practical terminology? What does it look like? And it seems the only way to describe it is by way of comparison. You know, comparing the life of contentment uh, to the life of coveting. For example, a covetous person is constantly focusing on what they don't have. A contented person gives thanks for what they do have. It's the difference between grumbling and gratitude. A covetous person resents others, while a contented person rejoices with others. What do I mean? Well, you tell me, how do you respond to the good fortune and success of the people around you? Let's say a friend of yours builds a big brand new house, uh, um, or your brother-in-law makes a, a shrewd a financial investment that pays off, or a coworker gets a promotion, or a classmate uh, gets an A on an exam. How do you react to that? How do you respond? What, what are the feelings you have with all that? I mean, if you're bent, if you're bent toward coveting, you're probably going to be filled uh, with jealousy, anger, resentment, bitterness. You're not going to want to celebrate with them because they got something you didn't, and you don't feel too good about that. But if you're a contented person. With honesty, you can say to that friend, hey, man, I hope you enjoy that new house. It's beautiful. You've done a great job designing it. Or to the brother-in-law, hey, congratulations on the investment. Very shrewd. Brilliant. Or to your coworker, all the best in your new position. You earned it. You worked hard for it. You deserve it. Or to a classmate, hey, great job on the exam. See, contentment is expressed through rejoicing in the successes of others, not resenting them for it. Another difference between coveting and contentment is this. A covetous person dreams of taking, taking, taking. A contented person dreams of sharing. A selfish, greedy life clutches on to all that it can and it holds for dear life. A generous, contented life releases what it has for the good and the benefit of others. And then finally, and this kind of goes with that last one, a covetous person sees only what is. And a contented person sees what will be, which is why they're able to release, you see. In other words, one lives with a limited temporal perspective, obsessed with the here and now. The other lives with an eternal perspective, understanding what is to come. Jesus put it this way. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen, what it comes down to is this. As God's people, we are not to let our vision get clouded with greed and envy and 
resentment and bitterness and shameless consumerism and a whole bunch of stuff. But instead, we're to keep a clear vision on what's most important, on what's eternal in, in, in value. Now, given those comparisons that we did, how do you stack up with those? I mean, where are you on that, you know, generally speaking? Are you more, more focused on what you don't have or on what you do have? Are you grumbling or grateful? Do you resent others or can you rejoice with them? Is your dream to take or is it to share? Do you simply see what is or, or can you see what will be? When I started, uh, first started thinking through this 10th commandment, I got to tell you, I was like, okay, so God has already given, you know, his people a lot of directives here. And this last one seemed, I don't know, seemed a bit superfluous to me. It's sort of wondering, was it, was it really necessary? And uh, so I thought a lot about it. My conclusion is this, that yes, it was necessary. It is necessary. And, and here's why. Sin isn't only about doing bad things but is more fundamentally about making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a good thing, more than on God. And whatever we build our life on, it will drive us and enslave us. And so, in short, sin is primarily idolatry. It makes us desire something to the point uh, desire something to the point where where um, we want it beyond what's good for us, beyond what's reasonable for us, beyond what's right for us, beyond, beyond what's healthy for us. We want it more than we want God Himself. So you see, this last commandment, what it does is it it leads us right back to the first, where, where God says, "You shall have no other gods before me." He says, nothing else, no one else is to ever take my place in your heart, in your life. So the 10th commandment is saying the very same thing. But here's the reality. The things we covet are the idols in our lives. They're the things that we think will make us happy and fulfilled. And so they become the things that we over-desire, that we worship and serve. And uh, I wish I could stand up here and say that I don't, I don't wrestle with this 10th commandment, but I do. I mean, there are times I see, see things that I don't have and I want them and I, I desire them. And the passion to possess gets pretty intense. You guys know what I mean by that. But despite my own sinful inclinations, despite the rampant consumerism of our culture, God says this. He says, Ray, be content with what you have because I've given you way more than you need. And way more than you deserve. So desire, worship, and serve me, your God, more than anything or anyone else. And you will be satisfied forever. And God doesn't only say that to me. He says the same thing to every one of you. And my hope is we can be that kind of people. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we live in, um, in America, uh, a nation of great resources, a nation of freedom, a nation in which we can make decisions of, about how to live and what to do with life. And, um, and we're grateful for that. But yet, even in the midst of that kind of freedom and that kind of abundance, uh, we wrestle with this idea of enough and uh, it never seems like we have it. 
And we've been led to embrace the lie that says we, we need one more thing to find happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction when that just leads us down a path of total exhaustion and disappointment. Because the only thing that ever truly gives us contentment, satisfaction, and meets the deepest desires and longings of our human hearts and souls is you, our God, who has created us and who loves us even in our brokenness. And you have proven it by giving your son Jesus, who lived the life, the perfect life we could never live, and who died the death we all deserve. You have truly given us way more than we need and more than we deserve. And we love you this morning. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.